Welcome everyone to the Optimal Performance Podcast. My name is Sean McCormick. I'm a life coach, performance coach, wellness entrepreneur, and it's my pleasure to bring to you every single week the world's leaders in the field of performance so that you can live your life at its most optimal level. Plus, cutting edge ideas so that you can stay ahead of the curve in an ever-changing world. Let's dig right in. What's up, everybody? Welcome back, or welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McCormick. I just want to say thank you right out of the gate for all of you that have followed me on Instagram at Optimal Performance Podcast, duh, or Real Sean McCormick, S E A N, which is my personal account. Thank you for following me. Thanks for the DMs and the support. Uh, I love doing this, and I'm so glad that you're you're just show up. You show up every week and you listen, and that's freaking awesome. I see you. <laughs> I'd love to meet you someday. On today's episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast, we are joined by Dr. David Adamson. He's on the board of directors at ARC or ARC Fertility. He's a consulting reproductive endocrinologist and surgeon with over 300 peer reviewed and other scientific and medical publications. He's lectured extensively on the topics of fertility, and he also is an associate professor. Uh, clinical professor at Stanford. I mean, the guy knows his stuff. And I don't know about you guys, but we need babies. We got to have babies if we're going to make this thing work as a human race. I don't know if you're with that or not. Families are good. Babies are good. And I know that for a lot of people, there are sometimes some troubles conceiving, having a baby. In this episode, we talk all about the different ways to treat and to help people who want to have children. Apparently, seven out of eight are able to have uh, be pregnant when they want to. Uh, the average age of their first baby is 30, and that age is actually getting a little bit older. We talk about the cultural differences in fertility. We talk about the importance of fertility insurance and support from em- employers. And then a little bit later in the episode, we talk about the implications of COVID. What is COVID going to do to fertility? How is it going to affect it? Does COVID get passed from the mother to the infant? We cover all of that stuff and he knows his stuff. This episode was is probably the, the type of episode that you can listen to at one and a half or two X speed. You're still going to get all the information. If this is really relevant for you, obviously you probably want to take notes or slow it down or just listen to it at a normal speed. But um, he does most of the talking through this entire episode, which good thing because he's an expert and, you know, I don't have too much to contribute uh, in terms of reproductive health. But this is a really informative episode. And uh, again, we got to have babies. We got to have babies. You know, I don't want to go too off the wall on, on the fact that I think it's important to cherish life and for people to have options and to plan for their family. Um, That's just where I'm at. Babies are good. Families are good. If you disagree with me, why? I guess. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Natural Stacks. Natural Stacks. Third-party lab tested, ingredient traceability, all natural. What that means to you is it's really high quality vitamins and supplements. We are all concerned with boosting our immunity right now as we should be, as we should be kind of all the time taking care of our bodies and boosting our immunity. There's some basic stuff that you should be taking like vitamin D and vitamin C. They have a great krill oil product. Go check them out. Go use the code OPP15 for 15% off your first online purchase. 
the fact of the matter is, is like a lot of the products, and I've come to realize this, a lot of the products that I like are products that I heard about on podcasts. And so the fact of the matter is, is that you already like what I talk about. You already listen to these episodes. So you may as well like know what I know about the sort of products that I take to stay healthy. And I only take the best shit. I only take the best shit. I smoke the best shit. Uh, my vitamins are the best shit. I have blue blocking glasses to protect my eyeballs. Like I have an organic bed and this is just me telling you about the shit that I have. But uh, I, I just, I want to speak plainly to you. I, the products that I love are products that I usually hear about on biohacking podcasts. And so I want to provide that same option for you. So you know what the good stuff is. I can't wait to share this episode with you. It's really informative. Again, you could probably listen to it a little bit sped up. Um, but it's packed full of information, and Dr. Adamson is a world leader in when it comes to fertility and babies are good. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Dr. David Adamson. And we're here with Dr. David Adamson. He's the director and founder of the ARC fertility, and also a clinical professor at Stanford and UCSF. Dr. Adamson, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. It's great to be here today. I, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, I know as a 30-something with 30-something friends and younger, um, fertility is, is an issue for an increasing amount of people in my life, friends of mine who have had trouble getting pregnant, who have tried all sorts of, of treatments, and, and, and I don't really know anything about it other than what they tell me. So I'm really looking forward to, to digging in. I'd like to start in the beginning by asking a question of just give us a, a little idea of your background and your experience um, in fertility in general. Sure. Uh, happy to do that. So I've been uh, a practicing uh, clinician for over three decades. And uh, in the earlier days, I focused primarily on uh, reproductive surgery and infertility. Uh, so I did a lot of cases for endometriosis and tubal disease and uh, uterine fibroids and things like that that uh, you know, required surgical uh, help. And then uh, I started an IVF program, in vitro fertilization or test tube baby program. And uh, I uh, built that up and ran that for uh, over 25 years and uh, was very, very busy uh, doing uh, IVF. Uh, in the past few years, I continued doing that, but less. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of consulting along the way. Um, <clears throat> I was very involved with a lot of uh, professional organizations that dealt with uh, practice guidelines and evidence-based medicine. So I'm very uh, focused in my career on, you know, what do we know and what don't we know based on the best available evidence, uh, recognizing that there have been lots of changes in this area. So the, the evidence does change over time, and, and that's really important. And I also have really been focused in a lot of uh, work on increasing access to quality reproductive care. Uh, there are a lot of uh, both social uh, equity issues and economic issues around fertility care and reproductive care, reproductive issues, especially about women, but also about men. And uh, these have created a lot of social challenges. So in uh, 1997, I started a company called ARC uh, Fertility. Uh, the, the technical name was Advanced Reproductive Care, but uh, we now uh, do business as ARC Fertility. 
And the purpose of that company was to increase access to quality care. So we made a national network, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, 85 clinics that do about a quarter of all the cycles in the country. And we uh, created uh, packages of uh, evidence-based services with financing so that we could help more people get more care. And now we're going out to employers uh, to help them uh, have affordable programs that enable them to provide this uh, care to their patients. So I'm, I'm really a very big believer that this is a very serious problem, affects a lot of people, uh, that there are real solutions based on good evidence. There's a lot of things we can do and that the major challenges of social justice and economic uh, access are important. And so uh, really my professional career in several fronts has been focused on addressing those different areas. Fascinating. It must feel good to be the guy that helps make life happen for people that are struggling. Does that, it must be a really rewarding career. You know, uh, Sean, there's a lot of days I think I've got the luckiest uh, job in the world uh, because I don't think there's anything much more important than family uh, for most people. And without being, you know, too facetious about it, uh, there's nothing more important for the human race than reproduction. Uh, if we don't have babies, then, uh, you know, we won't be here in, in a couple of generations. So uh, I think it is very, very important. And it's extremely rewarding uh, to be able to work with people who really are, uh, you know, committed and dedicated to having a baby. Because the people we see, of course, uh, we're not in a fortunate group of seven out of eight couples or people who do get pregnant if they want to get pregnant. About one out of eight couples cannot get pregnant. and it's a very, very important uh, issue in their lives. And so when we can help them with our advice and, and sometimes with our technical skills and sometimes with our technology uh, and provide them with uh, support, emotional support on this journey uh, to get a baby, it's exceptionally rewarding. And uh, I do feel you know, very, very grateful uh, and, and fortunate I've been able to spend my career in, in such an exciting area uh, that does uh, bring uh, so much happiness every day to people. Yeah. I'm a little surprised by this seven out of eight statistic. I, I would have guessed that just based on my own experience and in, in people in my sort of generation, that it would, that, that uh, it was a lower number of, of people who are unable um, to have, to have a baby if they want it. Has, has it been seven out of eight, success for for a long time or has that number shifted is it becoming harder and harder to to have to, to get pregnant so that's a great question and uh the the answer is is not as straightforward as you might think so if one looks at infertility um just based on each age group so if you took you know you went back say 35 40 years and you looked at infertility rates in a group of uh, people aged 20 to 25, and then say 25 to 30, and 30 to 35, and 35 to 40, those rates would, would not be all that different today than they were 40 years ago. But of course, what's changed is that there've been a lot of uh, you know, social developments, which most of us think are really positive. There is uh, a lot more equality uh, in our society now than there used to be. Uh, women are getting a lot more education, uh, men are getting some more education as well. Uh, both men and women these days, a, a lot because of the economic uh, situation out there, uh, get more education and work for a longer period of time before 
they feel that they're in a position to be able to have a family. And so what's happened is that at any given age, the amount of infertility is about the same, about one couple in eight on average, all ages, uh, will not be able to get pregnant when they want to at any given age. But what's, what's happened now is there's a lot more people who have delayed childbearing until the older age group. And so um, there is a, a higher amount of infertility as a, as a proportion, as a percentage in the older age group. And there are more people in that age group now, and it's more acceptable to talk about infertility. And so it, it, it not only appears that there are more people, but there are more people who are having difficulty getting pregnant, and there's a lot more we can do. So more people are coming for treatment. So overall, it's absolutely true that this is a lot more common experience uh, for people, you know, especially as you pointed out in, in their 30s now, where a lot of people used to have babies in their 20s. Now, you know, the average age of first birth is, is really around age 30 or so. So a lot of people are having babies in their 30s, and a lot more people are infertile in their 30s and especially late 30s. So your perception is accurate, but the reason we got there is a, a little bit, uh, you know, different than, than what you might think. Sure. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You know, I was, I was struck by, you know, the, the, the trends, the sort of, the sort of no, social norms across different um, demographics of people and, and other countries too. You know, I know uh, I made a Swedish friend over the course of the last couple of years and they have, they have, they couple early, they have babies really early and they suspend their sort of professional career. So they'll have, you know, they'll have their first child at, in their early twenties and the sort of sp- suspend their professional career, um, share the parenting uh, roles with, with the grandparents and then kind of go back to their professional careers later in life. And I was struck by it. And he, and, and my friend was saying to me like, this is how everybody does it in Sweden. They have babies early so that they can, you know, um, play and, and be around. We get help from, from grandparents. And then we kind of revisit and go back to our careers um, after we have our children. Do you, uh, do, you, do you see that change from country to country and, and how fertility works in that way? Absolutely. There's there are definitely a lot of differences around the world. I, I have been quite involved with a, a number of international organizations and so do have some exposure to this. And you're absolutely right that uh, in different countries, the cultural norms can be quite different. And even though it might be a very developed and educated country like Sweden, uh, they can have a different approach to reproductive culture. And certainly uh, one place you can really see this is across Europe, where even though the countries are small geographically compared to the U.S., let's say, uh, and they're fairly close together, um, that uh, there are some very substantial differences from one country to the other. And that's what you pointed out in Sweden. In fact, you know, it's very interesting in the U.S., uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, information in the media now and a lot of discussion about, uh, you know, gender equality and uh, social justice and women women in particular, um, you know, getting a fair shake, <clears throat> excuse me, in the job, in, in the job market uh, when they're having babies in their, in their 30s. And so there's a big push now, which, of course, I support completely to provide a lot better uh, fertility, uh, you know, insurance and care and family support for people. And that's really a great idea. But there's also, um, there's definitely conversation beginning around the concept of the Swedish idea, which is 
you know, rather than having people all wait 15 years and then providing all that support, you know, sort of mid-career, and it is a lot of support, it's financial support and then daycare and whatever, um, why not, you know, do that earlier in the 20s as, as the Swedes uh, seem to be doing and support people then uh, so that they can have their kids and have them younger. And then, you know, when they get back in the full swing in the workforce, um, let's say in their 30s, or kids would be older and, you know, uh, you know, a little bit possibly easier to manage the situation. So there's definitely conversation around that. And, uh, you know, in addition, as I'm sure you've seen, it is a lot more acceptable. When I say acceptable, I mean that it becomes, it's become more of a social norm and there's more employer support and what have you for, you know, women being pregnant and having babies when they're younger in their education or their training or in their job. So I think it is a good social trend that is becoming, you know, very acceptable, appropriate, and more normal, more normal meaning more normative, more commonly done uh, by, uh, by younger women. I think that's a very healthy trend. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's really cool to, to see the differences in how people approach, you know, family planning uh, across, across the world. It, was, it really struck me, you know, hearing that this guy had his, had his babies at 20, and that was totally normal. Like, that's what everybody does. Um, yeah. I, I'd love to take a, get your take on sort of some, a broad view of the different types of fertility treatments, because I know that some of them can be invasive, and some of them are hormonal, and some of them are um, a wide swath of different ways to think about it. So, you know, um, can you give us sort of a broad idea of the different sort of categories of fertility treatments that people, um, might consider if they're having trouble? Sure. And Sean, as I answer that, maybe I could start even a tiny bit earlier with my answer earlier, meaning chronologically in that I think what uh, is really an important message I'd like to give is that uh, it's really, really important for young people, women and men, because this, you know, generally, and we'll certainly, I'm very happy to talk about the wonderful advances for, you know, non, non-traditional family raising, you know, that is for the LGBTQ uh, community and, and, and single women and single men and, and what's happened there. A lot of really great advantages, but for couples, uh, for, you know, men and women, who, who um, are growing up and they're going to college and what have you. It's really interesting to me that so often, you know, I think about where do they want to go to college? What kind of job do they want to have afterwards? Uh, where uh, are they going to live? Uh, what, what kind of hobbies and sports they're going to have? And, and all sorts of things that people think about and plan and, you know, plan their education and whatever years ahead. And yet they often don't plan much for, their reproductive life and having babies. And this is just, it's just uh, very common in, in our society. So I would encourage all women and all men, you know, to think about a life plan, not just about their job and where they're going to live and maybe, you know, who their partner might or might not be. And those kinds of things, which are all very, very important, but it's also important to think about your, about your reproductive life. And where that matters is that there are steps that that, uh, that women and men can do when they're younger in terms of staying healthy and thinking about these things. And then, you know, having conversations with their partner about what they want to do with their reproductive life so that they both are on the same page and, and, and come to an agreement on it. And then when they decide that they want to have a baby that they, 
you know, there, there are things I can do to optimize their reproductive health, which I'll be happy uh, to talk about. But then, you know, when it comes time that they haven't been getting pregnant, uh, they'll be able, they'll, they'll sort of have been on a journey that's been more, a little bit more planned, a little bit more understandable. Now, the first thing in terms of the types of treatments, uh, the first type of treatment really starts with, you know, making sure that you're in good general health, both the woman and the man. And this is, you know, diet, uh, exercise, getting enough sleep, uh, good, you know, mind, body, health, uh, not being overweight, et cetera. And it's important to do this because if people do that, they're going to get pregnant uh, sooner, uh, generally, if they're, you know, reproductively healthy than if they're not, don't smoke, don't drink too much alcohol, et cetera. They'll get pregnant sooner, won't have to worry about treatment. So the, the first thing about the type of treatment is the preventive treatment, which is not to need it by, by planning. So you don't wait till you're 42 or three or four to start when you might get pregnant, but it's a whole lot tougher. So start sooner, be reproductively healthy, uh, be having intercourse two or three times a week, uh, you know, at the right times of the cycle, practice safe sex before that so you don't get an infection and have a, have a problem. Um, and you do all these things so you reduce the chance you're going to need to have treatment. Now, when should you go for treatment? When you should look at that is that generally speaking, if a couple have been trying for a year, 12 months, and they're under age 35 and they're not pregnant, they should go to see a physician at one year. Now, if either the woman or the man has before that had some kind of health event that would make them think they're at increased risk of a problem. For example, obviously, if they had cancer and they had to have chemotherapy or radiation therapy, that they, we know could be a very serious issue with respect to getting pregnant. They should go see a doctor right away. If a woman's had major surgery for uh, fibroids to be removed, or if she had a ruptured appendix and so she might have adhesions in her pelvis, or if she has a lot of pelvic pain and might have endometriosis, um, or if she has very irregular cycles, or she has some other type of health problem like thyroid disease or diabetes. So there's a known health problem that might impact fertility. It is not necessary to wait a year to go looking at treatment. You want to go see a doctor right away so you can deal with those issues and, and plan and get started right away. Same thing for guys. If the guys had you know, the proverbial sports injury uh, with the testicular trauma, or if he's had some operations on the, uh, on the, you know, the penis or the testicles for problems or hernia repairs that, you know, might not have gone well, or if the guy has some other major uh, type of medical problem, or if he's, uh, you know, if a guy's using a lot of uh, marijuana or smoking a lot or has an alcohol problem, these things are going to impact pregnancy. So the point here is that one of the major parts of treatment is to plan your lifestyle and have preventive strategies in the first place. And secondly, if you're at increased risk, don't wait to go see somebody and get these things dealt with. So if you're 35, you should go see a doctor after 12 months. If you're 35 to 40, after about six months, and at age 40, if you want to have a family, you should probably go in to see a doctor if you're not pregnant within about three months, simply because of the impact of age on your chances. Now that said, once you go in, there's there's basically four major categories of treatments, and they're, they're pretty simple to remember. Uh, the first one has to do with eggs and hormones in the woman, eggs and hormones in the woman. And the second one has to do with structural anatomical organs that have to work uh, in order for the sperm and egg to get together and for the baby to grow. 
And so that's the uterus and the fallopian tubes and the environment with inside the pelvis. So you have to have a anatomically, uh, structurally within normal limits range there. Uh, the third thing you have to have are sperm. Uh, so the guy's got to be able to, to have sperm that uh, are functional, enough of them and they can move, et cetera. And then the last major area is what we call a cervical or combined factor, which means you have to be able to get the sperm and the egg together. So that comes down to uh, knowing uh, when they should be having intercourse, being able to have intercourse, not having erectile dysfunction or, or very rarely other anatomic or other problems that make it difficult for the sperm and eggs to get together. So the four big areas are sort of eggs and hormones in the woman, uh, uterus uh, tubes in the pelvis, and the second part, the third is the sperm, and the fourth is getting the, getting the two together. And, and so what we do then is go back and make diagnostic tests first on each of those areas, and then we come to treatments in each of those areas. As I think back to the points that you've made about being intentional about what you family planning, you know, if you're in a serious relationship with someone at, uh, at 19 or 20 or 21, like it can be, a, it can be a tricky conversation, right? On the, uh, yeah. seventh, seventh date to say, Hey, you want to have babies? Not with me, not with me, but do you want to have babies? Are you interested in having a family? <laughs> right. <laughs> You can, you can probably afford, if you're 19, you can probably afford to make a mistake on the seventh date. So I, <laughs> I don't think you have to start that early. But, you know, by the time people are talking about having a long-term uh, relationship, you know, it's important to do. I've, I've, had, I've had women come to my office who are 39 and they want to have a baby and they're by themselves. And I said, well, uh, you know, we, obviously there's things we can do with donor sperm and what have you, but you know, you're older and it's going to be a bit tougher to do this. And I said, you know, what happened? And, and I, many, many times, not once or twice, many, many times women said to me, well, you know, I was with this guy and he was a great guy and I really loved him and he loved me and things were great. And I've been with him since I was 30. But last year, you know, I said, look, it's really time for us to have babies. And he said, I, I never want to have babies. I don't want to have any babies. And the, the reality of it is, I mean, and these were not <clears throat> stupid people or anything. They're just people who thought um, that, you know, when the time came, it'd be easy to get pregnant. So nobody mm-hmm. paid much attention to it. You know, it's like you turn the, 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 the tap on and the water comes out. And mm-hmm. people think, well, I'll throw away the birth control pills and I'm going to get pregnant. Um, but it's important to have those conversations. So that's what I mean. I, I think at yeah. 19, I'd probably give him a pass. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Great advice. Uh, let's talk about birth control pills for a minute. Uh, I, I, I've come to understand just how damaging um, birth control pills can be for women and their hormones. Can you speak a little bit about the about what you know about the dangers of of, uh, of birth control pills and what effect that has on hormones. Cause like you said, it's like, okay, let's get pregnant tonight. I'm not going to take my birth control, uh, today and we're going to start trying, um, is, is a decade of birth control pills, uh, by a woman make it harder to, to turn that corner and, and, uh, and make a baby. Well, you know, uh, Sean, I, 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 uh, be thoughtful about how I present this, but in reality, um, the birth control pill actually is an excellent uh, uh, medical intervention 
uh, for women who want to help protect their fertility. And it's, there's a lot of misperception that uh, take a birth control pill that it's going to be harder to get pregnant later. Now, the only truth to that part of it is that um, if uh, you take a woman who's, say, been on a birth control pill for three, four, five, ten years, and she stops the pill, it is absolutely true that if you look at the next year of trying to get pregnant, the women who've been on the pill for five or ten years are going to get pregnant at a very slightly lower rate minimally slightly lower than a woman who's not been on the pill. And that's because it takes a little bit longer. It takes a, you know, a couple of months or three months for the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus to get right back to normal because the pill does thin that out, but that needs to come back to normal. And um, sometimes the cycles don't start again right away. But the bottom line is if you look out, you know, eight to 12 months after stopping the pill, there's no, there's practically no difference in the pregnancy rate. So the reality of it is, it's not true that taking the birth control pill is going to make you less fertile. And indeed, one of the, there are a number of advantages of taking the pill. The first advantage is that women don't get pregnant when they don't want to. And that's a very non-trivial benefit of the pill, right? I mean, that's the reason yeah. it's taken. And that's very important because, you know, unwanted pregnancies are a tragedy millions of times a year in this country and it's a tragedy for everybody it's a tragedy for the woman it's a tragedy for the you know the fetus for the family and society and everything i mean um i'm very much a believer in um, obviously very very much a pro-choice uh, individual but uh unwanted pregnancies are something that we would really really like to reduce and the pills great at that the other thing that people don't recognize is that the pill also prevents the ovaries from making ovarian cysts. And some women make ovarian cysts that can, in fact, rupture and, or cause pain and result in surgeries and things. So there's less of a risk of, of, um, of, of ovarian cysts. Uh, there's less of a risk, uh, probably, of endometriosis. Uh, this is a very complicated area. But uh, even though there's no proven proof because it's very difficult to get, but most of us believe that uh, the birth control pill can help reduce the, the, the progression of endometriosis. Again, that's not absolutely proven, but a lot of us think it's, it's probably true. Um, and there's evidence that it also reduces the risk of ovarian cancer in the long run and the risk, reduces the risk of bowel cancer. There is a slight increase in breast cancer uh, from the, taking the pill. Uh, but if you look at all-cause mortality of women on the pill and not on the pill, for a woman, let's say, in her 20s, taking the pill in her 20s, the all-cause mortality for a woman taking the pill is going to be about half as high as a woman not taking the pill. The major benefit, of course, is not having pregnancy and the complications of pregnancy that cause illness and even very, you know, occasionally death. So the major reason for the reduction in death is from prevention of pregnancies. But there are other benefits that also prevent morbidity and mortality by taking the pill. So in actual fact, for, for a woman who can take the pill, there's some or can't, there's some, you know, you pointed out some women take it and it just doesn't agree with their system and their hormones. And some women shouldn't take it because uh, they have uh, medical underlying medical conditions, uh, for example, hypertensive conditions or abnormal blood clotting conditions, et cetera. So there's definitely some women who should not take it. And there's some women who don't tolerate it well. And of course, for them, it is not a good choice. But for women 
who can tolerate the pill, it is actually a good choice uh, during the reproductive years and it will not uh, reduce their subsequent, um, subsequent abilities to get in pregnant because it reduces the risk of uh, pelvic infection, it reduces the risk of probably of endometriosis, reduces the risk of ovarian cysts and unnecessary surgeries uh, and what have you. It actually uh, absolutely has no negative impact on future fertility. So it's a, it's a myth, it's a social myth, but it's not true about the pill. Well, thank you for setting me straight. I, I appreciate that. I um, that that's really it's good to know, and I'm with you. Um, yeah, there's a I'm, lot of myth about the pill. A lot yeah, of myth about it. Right. I mean, unwanted pregnancy, just like you said, using the word tragedy to describe that. Um, yeah. I mean, the the good definitely outweighs the bad. It sounds, and the bad is very very yeah. minimal. No, that's and, that's how I put it. And again, yeah. it's not for everybody. Yeah, not for everybody, but. For women who can take it, 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 uh, it, it's a really very, very good contraception. Yeah. So I want to th- talk a little bit about, um, you know, you mentioned a, a little bit earlier about, you know, not drinking, not smoking, you know, use of cannabis and so forth. Um, how important in your mind is lifestyle to, um, to fertility overall? Right. That's a great question. So, um, Let's, let's start with the easy ones, uh, and the easy ones are that um, a good a good diet, and uh, it's it's certainly reasonable for women in the reproductive years to take a, a prenatal uh, vitamin, uh, you know, a, a good multivitamin uh, with uh, you know iron, folate, um, uh, you know, uh, zinc, and the usual uh, uh, vitamins are are important, and and one can easily argue even though. A woman might have a very good diet. It's it, and 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 a woman with a really really good diet uh, probably doesn't really need to have the supplements. But um, to have that and some calcium, you know, and a good prenatal multivitamin should really cover it. I would emphasize you don't really need a whole lot more than that. So it's not necessary to get into megavitamins and things. But we all know what a healthy diet is. It's just you know sometimes hard to do it. But you know, different food groups, not too much, and uh, and. Uh, you know, a colorful plate, et cetera. So a healthy diet. This is also important for men uh, to have this for the same reason. And, um, you know, whether or not they should be taking a daily multivitamin, I think is uh, more difficult to argue for, but I wouldn't argue against it either. I would argue against, you know, megavitamins, but having a healthy diet is important. This, and, and second thing, which obviously is sort of somewhat related to that is uh, weight and uh, this is where you get into some very significant issues because uh, the data <clears throat> are a little fuzzy on the exact threshold, but at a BMI, you know, body mass index, which is not a perfect measure, but it's a reasonable measure that's been used at a body mass index of about 31 or 32. And everyone should understand that normal BMI is, you know, arguably between about 18 and a half to 25 is a normal body mass index. And 25 to 30 sort of considered overweight and then at a at 30 bmi it's considered obese and then it's you know it gets up to increasing a scale of obesity but somewhere around a bmi of 32 or so which means basically that the person's about you know has has about a quarter extra weight than what they should so you know if they're supposed to weigh 150 pounds they weigh 200 pounds you know that's a fair bit of extra weight but somewhere around there fertility definitely goes down uh, probably takes about twice as long to get pregnant. Miscarriage rates go up. 
complications in pregnancy goes up and the chances of having a baby with a serious problem also goes way, way up. So obesity is certainly related to diet. And so a healthy diet by and of itself matters, but obesity is really important to avoid. Exercise is good. And of course, it will help to keep down weight. Uh, probably a couple of hours a week of really hard aerobic exercises is towards the top limit for women, maybe three hours at the most. The studies are a little fuzzy on, you know, where the threshold is, but we all know that, you know, women who are professional dancers or, you know, gymnasts and, and who are, are long distance runners, whatever, often don't have regular periods. It's, and, and some of it's due to often they're very much thinner and don't have very much body fat and the body fat's important for hormone regulation. Uh, so it is uh, somewhat because of body weight, but it's also, we know exercise by itself. If there's more than say two or three hours a week of really aggressive aerobic exercise, it can reduce fertility. So exercise matters, but not too much. Now the woman can, uh, women who do a lot of exercise can replace that with, you know, doing Pilates or doing some weights or doing swimming, which is really not that aerobic for practically everybody. So there's lots of other exercises they can do. It doesn't mean you can only exercise two or three hours a week. It means really when your heart's pumping and you're huffing and puffing two to three hours a week uh, is probably the upper limit for women in their reproductive years. Uh, for guys, it doesn't seem to make as much difference. So diet, exercise, weight matter, sleep matters. This is where a really underslept nation probably, you know, people should be getting seven and a half to eight hours of sleep a night, really helpful uh, for all aspects of health and certainly reproductive health. Another one that you, you mentioned, which is really a killer, of course, is smoking. And every study out there shows that smoking is really, really bad. It makes it harder to get pregnant, increases risk of miscarriage, increases risk of having a baby with a problem, increases complications of pregnancy, increases problems in the baby. So it's really important not to smoke at all. Just don't smoke. Alcohol is a bit more complicated. Uh, there's a lot of studies out there which suggest even for women, they can probably have a you know glass a, a, a day of alcohol. That would be a four ounce glass of wine or one ounce or so, a bit more maybe of, of uh, alcohol or a beer a day. And it's probably not a problem. There are other studies out there that say the women who, who drink any alcohol have a slightly more difficulty getting pregnant um, now, it's unquestionably true that once a woman's pregnant, she should not be having alcohol. I mean, that's really clear. Uh, you can get effects on the baby, which are not good. But I couldn't, in good faith, tell, you know, women in their 20s and 30s, oh, you know, don't drink because you might get pregnant. I think it's fine for them to, you know, certainly have some drinks, but the limit is, you know, probably one a day is okay. And, you know, if you have two on your anniversary, not worry about it, right? But the point is that there are some limits on alcohol. And for guys, it's probably one or two drinks a day. And I'm not recommending they should have that much. I'm saying definitely not more than that much. Um, the other one that comes up, of course, is uh, caffeine. Um, and uh, there, again, there's some variable results on this, but most studies would show, most studies show that up to four or five cups a day of caffeine. Now, this could either be coffee or something in a, you know, a soft drink or what have you, but four to five cups a day or drinks a day of caffeine, not more. And then there's other studies that suggest that for women getting pregnant, actually one or two might be more than enough. And, and the, the data aren't you know absolutely definitive here, but for a woman who's actively trying to get pregnant, I probably 
reduce that number to one to two a day. And if they could cut it to zero, maybe better. But I wouldn't say don't have any, but probably one or two a day. The rest of the time up to even four or five if they wanted. And then the, the other one, of course, is uh, rec recreational drugs and marijuana. Um, curiously, the data is a little more mixed on this, um, but there are no studies showing that marijuana or other recreational drugs are helpful. And I would say with marijuana, I definitely recommend against it for men or women when they're trying to get pregnant. Um, and I think, you know, what they do at other times, I, I'm not going to make a, a definitive comment because it's hard to do that. Most of the studies on marijuana and sperm show that it does harm sperm, most of the studies, but not all of them. And so you can't say absolutely proven that marijuana harms sperm, but most people would feel that it's likely harmful to sperm. And certainly for a couple trying to get pregnant, I'd say no marijuana at all, and certainly no other recreational drugs at all. So I basically say no to other recreational, uh, recreational drugs. Yeah, I mean that's that's in line with just living a healthy lifestyle, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, right. Keep your keep your body in balance. Don't overdo it. You know, a little bit goes a long way. Um, what what about um, well, how do you? And I know that it's case by case. It's depending on what's going on for one one person or another. But how? What's what's the process besides extensive testing and interviews and all this stuff about lifestyle and 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 with um, and biometrics, but how do you go about determining which um, uh, which processes to to take people on um, interventions or um, I'm, I'm missing the right word there, but how do you determine what people should do what? Like if I've got slow swimmers, uh, was that motility? Um, how how, did, how does that factor into the um, to the suggestions that you make as as a doctor to help people get pregnant, is there like a yeah? If you've got sure. X, you should do Y. Is there? Give me some examples. Sure. So um, let's take each of those four categories we talked about: sort of egg and hormone problems, and then we'll talk about you know sort of pelvic problems like uterus and fallopian tubes and and that, and then talk about the guy with sperm, and then talk about. Uh, you know, the combined factor, cervical combined factor, trying to get the sperm and egg together. And there's some very straightforward things. Of course, the devil lies in the details, a lot of details, but in, in first principles, it's really pretty straightforward. So with respect to uh, eggs and hormones, the most important thing for the woman is the woman's age, because as a woman gets older, the number of eggs she has is decreasing all the time because a, a little baby girl is born with all the eggs she's ever going to have. In fact, the most eggs she ever has, she has about four months in utero. And then the number of eggs starts dying so that when she's born, she usually has somewhere around 750 million eggs, uh, 750,000 to a million eggs. Um, by puberty, there's about 350 to 500,000 uh, eggs. And by age 35, about 35 to 50,000 eggs. And by age 40, about 10 to 20,000 eggs. So the number of eggs is going down all the time. So the number one thing we want to know when a couple walks in to see us is how old is the woman? That is far and away the single most determinative factor of what we're going to do and what the chances are. The second thing is whether or not she's got regular menstrual cycles or not. If she does, she's probably ovulating regularly. There's other fancy things we do, of course. The third thing is other hormones. So we want to know if her thyroid is working normally, if she might have diabetes or not, if she has elevated level called prolactin. 
or if she has other hormones that might be off called androgens. These are male type hormones like testosterone and other derivatives. And all uh, women have these in much lower levels, of course, than men have them. So we do a simple history. We do some blood tests to see what the hormones look like. And we uh, check, uh, you know, check the menstrual cycle. Now, if there's a problem that we find, like with thyroid or diabetes or lactin, we have medications or pills that can treat those. So if you find a disease or a problem, you treat it. The second thing is if the woman's not ovulating regularly, we have pills that we can use to almost invariably make the woman ovulate. There are very few women we cannot make ovulate. There are some, but most we can make to ovulate regularly. And so that's the first step uh, that we do and we find a problem and, and treat it. Now, sometimes uh, we give pills to make the woman make more than one egg and that's called ovarian stimulation. And we do that because if we get more than one egg, we have more than one target for the sperm. And in fact, the pregnancy rate does go up if you get more than one egg. It you know, seems intuitively obvious and in fact, it's biologically true. So we sometimes, so we use these drugs either to make the woman ovulate or to get more than one egg. And if there's other hormone problems, we fix them. Now, then you go to the pelvis and the major things you're looking for here, are whether the uterus is normal or not, it, it may, very few women, one in 200 has an abnormally shaped uterus. Some women have fibroids or myomas, which is just growth of muscle in the uterus. These are not cancer, not cancer, but they can interfere with getting pregnant. And some women have other uh, conditions uh, in the ovaries called the uh, ovarian cysts. Sometimes these cysts are, are made up of endometriosis. Endometriosis is a condition where the lining inside the uterus called the endometrium goes back out through the fallopian tubes. That's generally how it happens, we think, and implants in the pelvis. And every month with a period, it bleeds and it causes pain and it can cause scar tissue or adhesions. And endometriosis reduces the chances of getting pregnant. You can see endometriosis sometimes in the ovary and a cyst. So how we find out about what's going on in the pelvis is the first thing is an ultrasound. This is a very simple procedure done in a gynecologist's uh, fertility specialist's office where a vaginal probe is placed in a woman. It, it's not painful. It might be slightly uncomfortable, but it's certainly not painful. And uh, sound waves are used to take a, take a picture to look at the uterus and the ovaries. And sometimes we put a little bit of fluid inside the uterus uh, called the sonohistogram, a uh, little normal saline, and we can look for polyps or the thickness of the endometrium or scar tissue inside. And we can look at the shape of the uterus and we can see if fluid's going out the fallopian tube. So we can do a very simple, very, very simple, non-painful office procedure to assess the uterus and the fallopian tubes and the ovaries and get an idea what's going on there. If a problem is found, then it often would require a surgery to fix it, either a hysteroscopy, looking inside the uterus and taking out a polyp or some scar tissue. Uh, uh, if there's fibroids uh, in the uterus or scar tissue called adhesions around the ovaries or endometriosis, this is usually fixed with, uh, treated with a laparoscopy. This is a surgery that requires a general anesthesia, but it's usually in and out surgery one day in and out of the operating room in a surgery center, outpatient surgery center. And a lot can be done at laparoscopy now to fix up any pelvic problems. So that's sort of fixing any anatomic or structural problems. The third one's a guy, do a semen analysis, 
the, the fellow gets a specimen uh, uh, by masturbation and then it's checked in the lab for um, you know how much uh, volume there is, how many sperm uh, there are, uh, how fast they're swimming and what their shape are basically. And based on those numbers, we have a reasonable idea uh, whether the man's gonna be reasonably fertile or not. The semen analysis is far from a perfect test, but it gives us some important uh, understanding of what's going on with the guy. And then the last part, the cervical combined factor, that's largely a history. So we asked the couple how often they're having intercourse. I mean, it's amazing how often people with their busy lives and whatever, they say, well, we're not getting pregnant. And how often are you having sex? Well, once a month. And that's not enough. Uh, what many people don't understand is the best time to get pregnant is about five or six days before ovulation, before ovulation. And so the ovulation predictor kits that people use are helpful, uh, you know, but by the time that turns positive, there's only about one day left in which pregnancy might occur. And the best four or five days are, have already happened. So it's important for couples to have intercourse two or three times a week for the week before um, the woman's going to ovulate. And you can determine this based on uh, temperature charts, urine, uh, LH kits, these little urine kits, uh, ovulation predictor kits, and other kinds of tests we have that are, that are more, a little bit more complicated. But we can figure out more or less when we ovulate, have intercourse. Um, if couples are using lubricants, they should not use KY jelly or Vaseline because they can harm sperm. Uh, there are a couple of commercial ones out there, but the cheapest and easiest uses uh, canola oil or mineral oil, uh, won't hurt sperm, uh, and, and those can be used. And the reason I mention this, you'd be amazed at how often people use in Vaseline or KY jelly uh, because, you know, it's, it's uh, tough uh, often uh, having intercourse when you've got infertility because you know, the woman is, is uh, you know, feeling it's time, it's time, and she's anxious about it. And the, the guy is sort of feeling he's just there to try to get a baby. And it's a very stressful, difficult time. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it can be very, very challenging for people with infertility. People sort of laugh about it and say, take a holiday, have a glass of wine. But that is not how it works. It's a very, very life-challenging situation so folks need a lot of sympathy and empathy we have to ask these questions of them though so we can help them make sure they're optimizing their chance to get pregnant on their own if there are problems with the sperm the the best way we treat it initially is to do what's called sperm washing and intrauterine insemination so the fella gets us a specimen of sperm again by masturbation we do some fancy things in the lab to get a small volume of highly concentrated sperm and that's put directly inside the uterus in a very simple uh, office uh, procedure and put a whole lot of sperm inside the uterus and and so the initial treatments usually come down to making sure the pelvis looks normal and then giving the woman some simple pills to make her ovulate or make even a, a couple or three eggs in a month ovulate two or three eggs and we do IUI with the guy's sperm at the right time and so what we're doing there is we're getting more eggs and we're getting more sperm and we're getting them closer together in the uterus and we're doing it at the right time. And by doing IUI, which is very simple, uh, that's a very simple approach, we can just about double, sometimes even triple uh, the pregnancy rate uh, from just having intercourse. Did you say canola oil? Canola oil, yep. Just the stuff you see in the store. 
What? Up in Safeway, yeah. Yeah, canola oil or mineral oil. That's what should be used. That's what should be used. Not not a water-based lubricant? No, use canola oil or mineral oil. Oh yeah, my gosh. Sperm like. Yeah, no, no, most people I've don't know that. I've never I have, I have uh, PhDs with in, in chemistry, you know, as patients and they come to the office and this is just not generally known, which is why I ask the question and why I bring it up, because there's lots of people out there and you know, uh, again, you know, Vaseline and KY are not great contraceptives, but they definitely are not helping get pregnant. They, they are, you know, slowing the sperm down. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I've never, never. No, people don't know that. That's why. I, I mean, canola, doesn't that, doesn't that agitate or irritate the vagina? No, no. Wow. No, oh my gosh. Don't. Works great. It's well, <laughs> well, my wife's got, uh, she's got something. She's going to be real surprised here, uh, here. <laughs> Just, you bring it home. She says, are you going to become a cook? You know, and you say, no, I, that's not what I had in mind. <laughs> wow. Oh man. Blew my mind there. Uh, I want to, I want to direct our conversation a little bit toward something that's, that's, that's so present right now um, in COVID and you know, we don't know much about it. We're struggling for information. There's lots of theories about where and how and why and when and how long and what it does and so forth. But, I'd love to hear a little bit about how how COVID, how having this virus may may affect um, not only an individual's fertility rate, but but just the rate of of births um, during this during this time period. Do you have some ideas uh, for for how COVID is going to affect us all as as far as fertility? Yeah, it's a great question, and uh, you know the, the first. Uh, statement about that is there's there's so many unknowns. So I, I'm very happy to share my thoughts on that. And I, I think I'm pretty up to date on on where the thinking is, but it's really important to emphasize that, you know, this might change as we get get more evidence because this is a totally new virus and it's a totally new situation for the world and just a whole lot we don't understand. So um I think the the first thing to start with is, you know, what what do we know about COVID and pregnancy? And the answer is that we don't really know very much, but there there are some data that are coming out now, um, and you know the the first data that are coming out are from Wuhan and China, uh, looking at uh, what's happened with women who are pregnant already in the third trimester, which means late in pregnancy and are delivering babies. And there's been a little bit of conflicting data, but basically, even though it appears that there might be some impact for women who have COVID late in pregnancy, COVID-19, late in pregnancy. And these women were, some of them were very sick. Some of them were, the, the, the first report had 33 women. Three of them were very, very ill. The others were just sick with it, but they all had it. Um, and out of that group, uh, there was some prematurity. In other words, women delivered earlier, but some of these women were on ventilators. They're very, very ill. So it would not be surprising that women who got COVID late in pregnancy, COVID-19, they had a, a very serious disease. It might impact the pregnancy and cause them to deliver a little bit early. Uh, and so it would be important if someone is pregnant, you know, later in their pregnancy or at any time in pregnancy, but, but not to get the coronavirus. Um, now, when the babies were born, only three, uh, most of the babies were born by cesarean section because the doctors were concerned about not having the baby get the coronavirus. And it's easier to you know, sterilize everything, keep it antiseptic with a with a cesarean section on the abdomen than with a vaginal delivery. So most of these babies, I think 93% of them were born 
uh, with cesarean section. Three of the babies, only three of them got, um, got coronavirus, and they think they became infected afterwards. Hmm. However, in one study, there were some antibodies, some early antibodies in a baby, and it wasn't entirely clear that the babies might not have gotten the virus inside the uterus. Now, the, the reason that matters is that if you thought there was transmission from the mother's body through the placenta into the baby, that, that would be a lot of concern. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. However, there is no evidence. I really want to emphasize this. There's no evidence at this time that this virus passes from a mother who's sick through her blood supply into the placenta and into the baby. We do not have any evidence that that happens. And so it's not, that does not mean that we have fabulous evidence that it doesn't happen. We may find out in two months or two years that in fact it does pass through. But right now we think it doesn't. And so the babies that got sick survived. None of the women in this study died. None of the babies died. They got sick. Three of the 33 got sick and got better. But the bottom line is we think it's, it's obviously not a good idea to get this virus in pregnancy. But when it did happen, the outcomes overall were generally pretty good. Also, earlier on, there was some concern that women who were pregnant might get COVID-19 easier. The coronavirus might attack them more easily. They might be more susceptible. This has not been shown to be true. We do not believe that's true. We think that pregnant women have the same susceptibility as non-pregnant women. That's obviously very good news. So towards, if you look at the middle or end of pregnancy, it appears that you want to avoid coronavirus just like everybody else because it's not good to get it for you. And when the baby's born, you really want to try to avoid getting the baby. So there may be an increased risk of cesarean section. In most of these situations, they're recommending that the mother not breastfeed the baby for two weeks until she can get cleared up of the virus so that she doesn't pass the virus to the baby in breast milk. So the baby would have to be fed otherwise for a couple of weeks. So that's another thing. So the baby is going to be kept away from the mother who's got an infection, which is, you know, obviously not what you want when you have a new baby. Now for us, one of the big issues has been, of course, what happens if a woman in the first trimester, you know, in week six, seven, eight, or nine, gets coronavirus, is that going to harm the baby? Or she gets it in the second trimester. Why does this matter? Well, we all know that rubella or German measles can be very, very bad for babies. There are viruses that if they infect a woman when she's pregnant can cause very serious damage to the baby that's permanent and ongoing. So far, there is no evidence that the virus crosses the placenta and affects the baby. So that is good news. We, we do not have any evidence that it causes harm. I must emphasize that does not mean we have excellent evidence that don't worry about it, there's certainly not a problem. We're not certain if there might be a problem in the future, but the best evidence we have now is that the babies are not being affected. So we don't know that for certain. So the initial recommendations even a month ago came out saying not only stop all fertility treatments and shut down all IVF clinics, which has mostly happened in the country. We can talk about that if you want. But they were also saying women should be trying not to get pregnant because we don't know what this virus is going to do to the baby when the woman's pregnant. Well, women are going to keep getting pregnant and, you know, around the world, especially with half the world, you know, stay at home. We know that pregnancies are going to happen. 
And while we don't know for sure, the current understanding is that likely and hopefully this coronavirus is, is not going to have a negative impact on baby. And if so, that's obviously very, very good news. But we, we cannot be certain about that yet. Interesting. Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about, about your take on the shutting down of fertil- fertility clinics. What's, what, what, was their, what was their thinking and, and how, what do you think about it? Well, the first thing I want to emphasize is I, I do know uh, the people who were involved in this decision uh, at American Society for Reproductive Medicine and also at American College of OBGYN and the organizations in Europe, um, uh, you know, British Fertility Society. Uh, and uh, the British uh, Society OBGYN, and also you know the World Health Organization, the International Federation of Gynecology and Obstetrics, and I'm fortunate that in my in my work I I know the people who are involved with this, and uh, the bottom line is what I can say unequivocally is that the people who made these decisions and recommendations are all very very smart people, very professional people who are trying, are using the best possible evidence to try to make the best decisions they can for the patients involved, the infertile patients, also for the medical staff, you know, the doctors and the other staff, and also for society. I mean, it's important for everybody now to be a good citizen. We're all in this together. And it's just really unfortunate that, you know, some people are going to suffer more than others. So there's no question with this telling clinics that they should stop IVF and whatever, except for, you know, cancer patients. There's no question this uh, has created a very significant harm for, but for very, very few people. And the reason I say that is that a delay of two or three months is not going to be a problem for the vast majority of people who want to have a baby. It's certain that if a woman's 42 or 43, it's very hard to argue that even two or three months might not have a little impact. Now, it won't have much impact, though. So the point is that by telling the clinics to stop the treatment, and, you know, the reasons to stop the treatment were, um, first off, that we needed to be socially responsible citizens and stay at home like everybody else to help protect the general public as well as ourselves from getting sick, to help protect the medical staff, to help preserve personal protective equipment, of which there is a real shortage, to help preserve medical facilities and medical personnel who all needed to be in the forefront with COVID, right? So there were a lot of social reasons to stop this, but the medical reasons were we really didn't know what this virus might do to a pregnancy, and it would be a tragedy to help someone get pregnant and then have them get sick with this disease and have a, you know, a, a very, very sick or, you know, a, a baby, you know, for a lifetime. This, this would be an absolute tragedy. So there just wasn't enough known. And, and there were a lot of very good reasons to say we should stop all treatment except maybe for a cancer patient or something. But what's happened is there's been very frequent reassessment of this, looking at the new data as it comes out. And right now, I know that most clinics in the country are planning about how they're going to open up here in the next few weeks. And I'm certain that many, if not most of the clinics are going to start opening up, but they're going to be doing it differently. They'll be doing a lot more telehealth. They'll be doing pre-screening with the patients on the phones before they come in. They'll have them come into the office a whole lot less often. 
They'll have them stay in their cars before they come into the office. They'll have social distancing in the waiting room. There'll hardly be anybody in a waiting room. They'll go straight to a room. Everybody will be using PPE. There'll be extensive uh, cleaning. Uh, there are going to be different protocols in the labs to make sure everybody's safe there, different personnel protocols. So all these things are being planned right now in the clinics, I know this, so that within the next you know, very few weeks, one, two, three, four weeks, I think we're going to start seeing patients coming back. It won't be business as usual because nothing's as usual, and they won't be able to see as many clinic, uh, clinic patients right away, but they'll start to see uh, you know, the most prioritized patients, meaning anybody who did have cancer, the women who are older, uh, you know, who, who need to get the treatment right away because of their age. So I'm very optimistic that, that things are going to start getting better here soon. And we'll keep looking at the data to try to inform us about what the best decisions are for society, uh, for the patients and, and for, you know, all the people, the staff looking after the patients. When, when you think, as I think about what the shutting down of fertility clinics is going to do to birth rates, um, I also think about what may be the opposite effect of, you know, staying at home and being inside and having nothing to do. Um, is there, uh, are there going to be far less babies uh, in, 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 the, in the coming months because of the, the lack of fertility assistance? Or are we going to have like, you know, instead of a baby boomer generation, we are we going to have like a COVID kid generation? Well, that's a great, great question. Well, certainly we, we did a little bit of statistics to look at this and there are going to be thousands of babies who are not being, you know, born because of the shutdown. I mean, last year, just with, just with IVF, just in the United States, there are about 74, 75,000 babies. So let's just, you know, say that's 1,500 babies a week. So if the, most of the clinics are, you know, shut down for, you know, six, seven, eight weeks. I mean, I think there's probably going to be, you know, at least 10,000 babies or so that are not going to be born in this time period that would have been born just from IVF, not to mention other fertility treatments, which would, you know, be probably easily another 10 or 20,000 babies. So there's going to be several tens of thousands of babies lost because treatment was stopped. I mean, that's a real price to be paid by society and, and obviously incredibly high price for the people who didn't have a baby then. Now, the hope will be that there'd be a little bit of a rebound maybe um, in the early term. And as I said, most people who didn't get a baby in the last three months because they couldn't get treated, the vast majority of those are going to be able to get a baby in the next three months or after that as they go back to treatment. There'll be, you know, it would, I think it would be wrong to stay. Nobody, nobody's been harmed by this permanently. I do not believe that. I am absolutely certain there'll be a few people that that window was just enough that it closed on them. We will probably never know who they are, um, but th there'll be some people that happen now in the general public. Uh, and so I think we will lose a few babies in the end. I think we'll, we'll lose some, but I think we'll get most of it back on the treatment end of it. We'll, at, at some point we'll get them back. Now on the public side of it, it's an interesting question. And I, I actually saw uh, an article and there's somebody done a study on it. And what it appears is after, very short term, you know, major events like, uh, you know, when all the lights went out in New York City years ago, um, <laughs> you know, the baby rate went up because obviously, you know, people were having relations and they had more babies and certainly everybody's at home now. And so you'd think, well, there's a whole lot more chance of babies. But other studies that were done, for example, in wars and, you know, famine zones, which are not exactly analogous to this, but in 
done in situations where there was sort of very significant but longer term uh, impact on society, negative impact, that the birth rate actually went down a little bit because probably because they postulated that, you know, people were less confident about the future and they were less economically, you know, well off. I mean, people are losing their jobs and people are worried about losing their jobs. The economy slowed down and people want to say, we can't afford a baby now. You know, I lost my job or I, we don't have as much money or we're not sure what's going to happen. Hmm. So I'm not sure. Um, I think this is a big enough impact that I, I'm not sure which way it'll go, but I, I don't think we're going to get a whole lot more babies because I think people are probably, you know, a bit concerned about the future. But I think there might well be a rebound later on. Let's say we're, you know, a year from now, we're really coming out of this. Everything's going. We're getting a vaccine and, and society's back normal and people are confident again and things look good. Then I think we might start saying, well, we didn't have a baby last year. We really want another child. Why don't we have a baby now? Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure it's going to happen right away. And obviously, I'm hopeful that it will happen maybe a little bit later. So, like the you don't you don't necessarily expect to see a giant spike of babies born in November of this year named Quarantina right. or Covidra or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah I mean, I, I, it might happen, and and I'm not an expert in this, but I, I don't think so. Uh, I think the rebound might be a bit after that. I think Slower. most of us are still in shock over this i mean we're still trying to figure it out right yeah it's, uh, yeah it's it's un, it's you know unprecedented is the word of the year i think yeah well this has been such a such an interesting and and thorough inspection um you know you've given people a lot of great information about how they how they can think about the different variables when considering fertility and um, I really, I really appreciate the time. Um, I have, I have a fill in the blank Thank question. You. Yeah. Yeah. I have a fill in the blank question that I like to end every episode with. So I'll, I'll ask that in a sure. moment, but before I do for people who are interested in, um, in connecting with you or, or connecting with, with, uh, with the arc, um, what are the information, how can they find you and where can they learn more? Sure. Uh, the our uh, website's www.arcfertility.com. We have lots of information there about uh, things we've talked about today, information about COVID. We have a lot of information about um, how you can make uh, uh, fertility treatment affordable uh, because that's what we're all about, increasing access to quality care and get access to uh, our national network of, of clinics. And uh, we're happy to, to answer questions. We also have some apps that are very personalized for information uh, for people. And if you approach those and, and there'd be um, phone, phone numbers and emails there that uh, you can get in touch with us if you'd like. Uh, so www.arcfertility.com. And uh, I, I hope that I've uh, been able to help folks just a little bit today on their fertility journey and really wish everyone um, their dreams come true for their family building plans, with mm. whatever they may be or whatever situation they may be in. That's so nice. Um, before I ask that fill in the blank question, I, I, I want to ask another question. Um, what question did I not ask that I should have? Oh, goodness. Well, um, we could certainly talk uh, a bit more about um, uh, the emotional aspects of infertility 
and and how significant this is. And we could also talk about how important it is that society recognize infertility as the disease that it is and the essential service that it is and how we're working very hard to get employers to recognize that so that they will start to provide better uh, fertility coverage for, uh, you know, for their employees. Uh, their employees will be much happier and much more productive employees, and this has been demonstrated, as well as helping to increase their uh, recruitment and, and retention strategies because of the, the things that you talked about, Sean, about you know, change perceptions and how people look at their work-life balance. And this is a very important uh, area for our society uh, to start to support reproduction and support uh, women and men who want to have babies. So we need employers to get more involved with uh, providing, uh, you know, fertility plans. And obviously we provide those in our company and we're working with uh, employers, but uh, it's a very cost effective way to help your employees and help yourself uh, uh, to, to really improve the quality of life and improve your company get involved with that. So that's a very big area because uh, there's very, very insufficient coverage across the country. Maybe the last thing to say is this National Infertility Awareness Week, uh, NIAW week. And so uh, folks can look things up about NIAW um, across the board on the internet. Wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely see that. Um, if you know that your, that your employer supports you in your family planning um, that that makes that makes that employer that much more attractive to support you and if you if you want to have want to have babies that's great um right. okay well let, let, so this last question is a fill in the blank question and it's purposefully um posited to catch people off guard so okay <laughs> <laughs> so be based on whatever not i mean can be specific to fertility of course um uh, but based on everything you know, and please elaborate as much as you'd like, please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing that their fertility is one of the most important aspects of their life. And it's really important to pay attention to it and take care of it when you're young so that it will be there for you when you decide to have a family. Well said, well said. Dr. Adamson, thank you so much for joining me today on the Optimal Performance Podcast. Thank you very much, Sean. I really enjoyed it. Thank you and good luck to everyone out there.